1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's
2: coming up. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky comes to Congress. Could the war be won or lost 5,000 miles from the home front? I ask Ben Hodges, former US Army commander in Europe. Also, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is still missing. His close aide Maria Pevchik shares her worries. Then, the extraordinary Marina Abramovich, the performance artist who brings a whole new meaning to body of work. Plus, the collision of free speech and anti-Semitism at some American universities. Harvard backs its president, while Hari Srinivasan speaks with Rabbi David Wolpe, who resigned from an advisory group there over the issue. welcome to the program everyone i'm christiana manpoor in london nearly two years ago president joe biden and his nato allies rose up to defend ukraine and help stave off russia's illegal invasion billions of dollars tons of armaments and ammunition were sent and the battle for democracy was well and truly joined biden and his allies promised that they would support ukraine for quote as long as it takes Until now, that is, when the U.S. Congress decided to insert politics over the U.S. border into this existential fight against Putin's autocratic Russia, holding up about $60 billion in new military aid as the White House warns that current funding could run out in just a few weeks. Here's House Speaker Republican Mike Johnson.
3: This is an important battle for all the reasons we know. But I don't think it is a a radical proposition to say that if we're going to have a national security supplemental package, it ought to begin with our own national security first.
2: But Biden has invited the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky to Washington to make his case at a make-or-break moment. He told Capitol Hill, if Ukraine loses, that means Putin wins.
4: All free
5: nations need to be confident in themselves, in their strengths, in their leadership, so that dictatorships doubt themselves and their power to undermine freedom. When the free world hesitates, that's when dictatorships celebrate and their most dangerous ambitions ripen.
2: In Moscow, Putin is watching closely while heavily bombarding the people of Ukraine. Retired General Ben Hodges led US forces in Europe and he's been a strong supporter of Ukraine and of what's at stake on the battlefield and off. And he joins me now from Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, General Hodges, welcome back to the program. We've often spoken about what needs to happen and you've often had an optimistic view of what... Ukraine can manage with full U.S. support. Are you concerned at the moment that this support is in question?
6: Yes, I am, Christian. Uh, this war is at a tipping point. Uh, we, the West, have, I'm very proud of what the administration and the West have done and what we have provided Ukraine, but we have failed the critical test of deciding what is the strategic outcome that we want. We have not said we want Ukraine to win. And so because of that, we've been hesitant and incremental in decision-making and approving what would be sent to Ukraine. And so we've stopped short of providing them what they needed to actually win. The Kremlin has adopted a long war strategy because they can see that they have no other hope except to wait for us to give up. That's why they feed hundreds of thousands of soldiers into the meat grinder every day to convey the impression that they have endless resources they can see that we are beginning to get tired or lose interest and every time the congress stumbles like they are right now or hesitates that's oxygen for the kremlin's desire for this long war strategy i just want to ask you because the congressional vote
2: is is incredibly important and zelensky is there trying to make his case uh you've probably seen these kinds of things before or maybe not has this kind of funding for a key American international national security issue being held up by a recalcitrant Congress? And in your mind, what should the administration do? Should it agree to a, you know, to more, whatever it, it takes, compromise on the immigration and border security?
6: Well, uh, this is not the first time, of course, that funding has been held up for different reasons. Uh, that's, that's not new. I think what's new is for the first time in my life uh, that the Republican Party has uh, turned its back on Ukraine uh, and is enabling Russian aggression. This is the party of Reagan. I never would have imagined that. This is a a sea change in American foreign policy. Now, the burden is also, though, on the administration. The president uh, and his team have got to explain to the American people why this is in our interest. Speaker Johnson is, is not correct when he says they need to focus on American security. This is about American security. This affects our economy. It affects uh, the possibility of us ending up in a NATO conflict. And of course, China is watching. Uh, if The Chinese see that we lack will and industrial capacity, then I don't think they'll be too impressed with anything that we say about the Indo-Pacific region.
2: Can I just ask you to, to lay it on the line for Americans and maybe even people in Congress? If the Ukrainians were not the foot soldiers in their own war against this Russian invasion, if, you know, Russia had invaded a NATO country... Would we not see American boots on the ground or such thing? I mean, in other words, isn't Ukraine doing America and the West
6: work for it in this in this case? Actually, Ukraine is doing exactly what NATO was created to do: was to stop Russia from uh, invading or devouring Europe. Not one American soldier has been lost in this conflict. So, for in relative terms, a very small percentage of our defense budget. Uh, Ukraine has taken about 300,000 Russian soldiers off the battlefield, has wrecked, uh, plus the sanctions we're doing, has wrecked Russia's defense industry. They're having to uh, import our really poor quality artillery ammunition from North Korea and drones from Iran. So Ukraine is doing something that helps us. It protects all of Europe. And they're not asking for American troops. They're just asking for the tools to actually win.
2: Can I ask you whether it sounds plausible to you? Uh, The U.S. has released some figures that uh, around 87 percent of Russia's active duty ground forces uh, are no longer there. The ones that existed before, you know, February uh, 2022 and now. Does that does that ring
6: reasonable to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Russians have had to, uh, from the original 140, 150,000 that they started with back in February last year for the large-scale invasion, since then they have gone through a couple of partial mobilizations, they have emptied their jails, they have pulled all of their troops away from the border with Finland, Estonia, and Latvia, as well as some of the troops that they have stationed in Georgia um, in order to to feed the the. Machine that they have in Ukraine, um, they have lost an enormous amount of casualties on top of equipment, ships, aircraft. Uh, they they have been attrited significantly. Yes.
2: And on the other hand, Ukraine, we know because we're hearing it. We've heard their head of the military talk about a stalemate. We know that the Russians are dug in heavily. We know that just this attrition is costing huge amounts of lives on the Ukrainian side, which they cannot afford. And today we're hearing uh, uh, an MP talking to CNN earlier, basically saying the following. Kyiv can be turned into the second Mariupol and totally erased because we see hundreds of drones flying to Kyiv every day. But they're not using the missiles a lot yet. In other words, Russia is not yet using its missiles. So we're waiting for a massive attack of hundreds of drones and then hundreds of missiles. And if that and if there's nothing to put them down with, that's it. We're done. How grave do you think the situation for Ukraine is right now? Even Zelensky is saying, you know, if we lose Putin wins, we might have to, you know, resort to guerrilla warfare.
6: Well, this is a war uh, for the survival of Ukraine. I mean, they are fighting literally for their national survival. And Russia clearly uh, has no concerns about using drones, missiles, rockets, and artillery against civilian targets. So what the member of parliament is talking about, of course, is this relentless uh, air war, if you will, going against civilian infrastructure as they did last winter. So that's going to continue. And so Providing uh, adequate air and missile defense for Ukraine is an important part of helping them get through this. But that's not going to decide the outcome. What's going to decide the outcome of this war is the ability of Ukraine to continue actually fighting. Um, What they will be doing, I think, over the next few months, they will be reconstituting units that have been worn out. They'll be working to improve the resilience and uh, power of their power generation systems there in their cities. I think that they will be uh, working on improving the efficiency of their uh, recruiting system. They still have a lot of manpower available in Ukraine. So I think there's things that they will continue to do. And also, I think we'll see a lot more sabotage happening in Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine and even inside Russia, and more pressure on the Russian forces in Crimea. So the Ukrainians are not going to sit around and and wait and hope that something good happens. They're going to keep moving with or without us.
2: Can I just switch over to the war raging in the Middle East right now? Uh, Brown University's Cost of War project reminds us that over 432 civilians were killed as a result of direct fighting in America's post-9-11 wars. That's Afghanistan and Iraq. The Gaza death toll stands now at nearly 18,000, according to the Palestinian health authorities. So I want to ask you a question. How... Can the Israeli army, how should it, the military, avoid civilian casualties? And given what happened to the United States, partly because of all those civilian casualties and the backlash, what will happen, do you think, to Israel if civilian casualties keep mounting like this?
6: Uh, Christian, if you'll allow me, the Hamas attack on Israel, by the way, is not a coincidence. Uh, Hamas did in one day what Putin could not do in two days, which is pretty much make the world forget about uh, Putin could not do it in two years, make the world forget about Ukraine. I I think that Iran, Russia's most important and closest ally supporting Hamas, uh, did this to support Russia. Russia is benefiting from this attack in Israel more than anybody. Now, to your point, the... uh, I have a problem with the mission statement that comes from Prime Minister Netanyahu. He told the Israeli Defense Force, destroy Hamas. That was it, destroy Hamas. There's no political dimension uh, to the strategic end state he described for his military. And if there's no strategic end state, then the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, obviously ends up using kinetic force only. But if the strategic end state includes a political dimension such as we have to live with our Palestinian neighbors at the end of this. That will inform how Israeli defense forces go about their task of destroying Hamas. Right now, I think, and uh, given the attitude of the Netanyahu government uh, on all aspects of this, uh, I don't see it getting any better, unfortunately. And, and that does not bode well for the ability of the United States to continue to support Israel.
2: So fascinating as we continue to watch both these wars. Uh, General Ben Hodges, thank you very much indeed. And of course, it's 432,000 civilians who were killed in those U.S. post-9-11 wars.
4: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
2: To Russia. Where is Alexei Navalny? It has been seven days since his team had any contact with him. He is, of course, the Russian opposition leader who's been jailed for years. This morning, he failed to show up for a court date, adding to the concerns Navalny has suffered serious health issues while in prison. Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, dismissed questions about Navalny's whereabouts, saying, quote, the Kremlin has neither the intention nor the ability to monitor the fate of prisoners. Maria Pevchik is Navalny's close aide and runs his anti-corruption foundation. She's joining us now from headquarters in Vilnius, Lithuania. Maria, welcome back to our program. Um, So so just can you give us an update? Is there any more news uh, in the last few hours? Have you received any more information
7: about the possibilities of where Alexei Navalny might be? I would love to give you an update, Christian, but we but, but we don't have anything new, and that's that's exactly the problem. It's been a week since we haven't heard anything specific from Navalny, and we are desperately looking for an update, for some sort of information, for clues that would help us locate him. But sadly, for um, more than seven days now. We have absolutely no idea where he is.
2: What do you think, when you think about it, with all the experience you've had, when you talk to all his lawyers and aides and the people who are in fairly contact, constant contact with him until now, what do you think is the reason? What do you think could have
7: happened? Um I think it's reasonable to say that it must be connected to um, Putin's presidential campaign, to the campaign that has been announced um, last week. Uh, Putin is going to run for uh, for the elections um, for the fifth time in March 2024. And um, it was officially announced last week. And around this time, maybe a day or two uh, before that, this is when we we have lost touch with um with, with with navalny and i would imagine this two events are interconnected we have also announced our own campaign anti-putin campaign anti-war campaign and um i think the ultimate purpose of this extreme isolation that we're dealing with now is to silence uh, navalny and um cut him off from uh, from the outside world um Entirely. Um, so um, it's very likely that this is the way that Putin is going to manage his presidential campaign, and he would uh, love it to be as quiet and as smooth as possible.
2: So are you saying, because as I said, uh, Dmitry Peskov said they had neither the uh, ability, the capacity nor the willingness to monitor prisoners' whereabouts, but obviously he's a major figure and he's a major prisoner, he's a major thorn in their own side, so they've got to know where he is uh, and what his state is. Do you think that this is going, the isolation will continue until the election or
7: thereafter? It it is possible, and of course every time uh, Peskov opens his mouth, it's very likely to be a lie. So um, we are sure that the Kremlin knows exactly where Navalny is, and we are also sure that the Kremlin, from day one of Navalny's imprisonment, that they are dealing with with, with him on a day-by-day basis at the highest available level at the president's administration. Uh, We don't know exactly what his plans are and this is also a terrifying thing. We know that the very same people who keep Navalny in custody right now, before that, have authorised his murder, before that, have attempted to poison him with a chemical weapon with Novichok. So clearly, these people have zero boundaries. These people have um, no respect to human rights and they are capable of absolutely anything and I hope that By talking about this, by bringing spotlight on Navalny, we will pressure the Russian government to release some information about his whereabouts, because it is unreasonable that such a high-profile prisoner, one of the most well-known political prisoners in the world right now, has gone missing. Can I ask you just to go back to something we spoke about um,
2: when, when you know, during the filming, he, the documentary that won the Oscar. Before Navalny went back to Russia, I asked him about his decision to return. This is a little bit of what he told me, just a short excerpt from our, our interview.
1: Is the reason why our the whole country is degradating. He's the reason why people are so poor. We have 25 million people living below the poverty line.
3: And the whole degradation of system, uh, uh, fortunately for me, including system of assassination of people, uh, he's the reason of that. And uh, I
2: want to go back and try to change it. He being Putin, obviously. When we spoke, you said that you, you know, believe he made the right decision to go back. Do you still think he made the right decision?
7: Um, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still convinced he did. And as, as difficult as it is to say it, um, well, just look at what happens. Even more people live below poverty line now. Even worse, things have happened: more murders, more more, more political imprisonments. And Putin, since since that interview that we were just seen, has started, has launched a war, a full-scale war yep. against against Ukraine. So um, now it really doesn't it make more sense now why Navalny went back. That's it. That's exactly why he did it because it's it, it's it's Somebody needs to stop this. Somebody needs to be brave enough to, uh, to say no and to fight this dictatorship. And Navalny, being the leader yeah. like he is, he's leading by example. Yeah,
2: and paying a very heavy price. Maria Pevchik, thank you so much for joining us. Now, in contemporary art... There is the world before Marina Abramović and the world after. The Serbian artist is a celebrated pioneer of performance art. Rather than working with canvas or clay, she uses her body as her medium, forcing audiences to interact with her in ways that range from uncomfortable to downright dangerous. The Royal Academy here in London has taken on the daunting task of presenting a definitive retrospective of Abramovich's work. And when we met there recently, she showed me through some of the installations while also demonstrating why she is truly on an extraordinary journey. And at 77, she remains an unstoppable leader in her field. Marina Abramovich, welcome to the program. There is performance art and then there is you. Just a walk around this exhibition really makes me wonder, are there any limits that you will not go to?
5: Your body is your tool, and it is extraordinary what you do to it. But this, uh, this question I can answer with another question. Who create limits? Who create limits? I think we do, you know, and I think it's very important to, when I get an idea that I am not interested in the idea I like, I'm interested in the idea I hate and I'm incredibly scared of because that means there is a problem that I have to solve. And then I like to do it. So the only thing that I'm doing, I'm using my own body in order to stage that kind of fears in the front of the public. I'm going through, if I can go through, you can do so. So the way you've performed going through is through a door where originally you and
2: your lover at the time stood in a doorway, naked. And the challenge was for the visitors to walk through you. What, what fear were you addressing
5: there and what did you aim to accomplish? No, first of all, you know, the, the main idea was there was a big performance festival in Italy at that time, very early in 1977. And we were thinking, what are we going to do in this festival? But, you know, the, the idea was if there's no artists, there will not be museums. So artists are the door of the museum. So we want to be in very poetical way the door of the museum to do that, we have to rebuild the door smaller. So this really narrow, actually, entrance. In those days, was impossible. In MoMA, was already not possible. In many other museums, you have to have a second entrance that, you, that people have alternative. But this 1977, we had the radical way of doing stuff, which now, because of political correctness and so on, we are not able to do anymore. So the, the, we have lots of restrictions of, the, of art today. And then the idea was we go through, and the fear was really to be naked, And to have hundreds and hundreds of people passing so close, chatting your body, and have this intimacy, not easy, not even mention stepping on your feet. And 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 did that happen? Oh, yes, many times. And did people, either intentionally or not, touch you in areas that you didn't want? that in that particular work, there were people so intimidated, they would go very close, they would try to avoid eye contact, and they would say, scusa me in Italian, excuse me, which was. Mm -hmm beside the point we create the situation. There was one only man who had a small camera and just passed very fast and took photo of our genitals. That is that is very weird. But here's a question, Marina. Um, you say that in the intervening years,
2: you've had to provide alternative spaces for people who are uncomfortable of experience that close intimacy. A, is that a censorship? And B, self-censorship? And B, how do you react to societies? How could she do that? This is just so naked. This is so, you know, too revealing,
5: etc. If I will read the criticism from the seventies, I will never leave the house. I, it, I was completely crucified. My mother and father, first of all, when I was doing stuff like a Bernie star, communist star on the square in Belgrade, there was a question, the communist parties, what the hell education I had. Professors was thinking that, that I should be put in mental hospital. It was everybody was against it. I had to believe so much in this kind of form of art till now that actually this form of art really, I, I, I think that's the, that's the incredibly important because it's immaterial. It's uh, time-based. You have to be there to watch it and see it. And it's highly, highly emotional. And, uh, and it's the only way I can do it. What are you saying here, Marina? This is quite, I, I made the skeleton exactly my size and by lying, I'm lying. A skeleton is breathing. I just want to know, you know, how that feel, this transition. Sufi said, Life is a dream and death is waking up. I just want to know that moment, because the moment that I want to die is without fear, without anger, and, uh, and consciously, three things. And that's something that, that I, you need to train during the life. It so doesn't it, come just like that.
2: Death is a huge part of your life and your work.
5: Yeah. You're always thinking about death. All the time. So, here, so what, how do you stay emotion. happy and positive? I am, I'm hilarious in real life. <laughs> I, I'm honestly ready to stand up comedy. <laughs> I have so much I need to love, and because work is so heavy. And this, this here is dramatic.
2: What, what caused you to do, this is your reflection uh, on the Balkan Wars. Yeah, and, and I uh, covered the Bosnia war. Yeah.
5: You know, you can't clean the blood. And I'm cleaning blood, which is American. But they also create a metaphor that this can be in an any anywhere, anywhere. Here, when we open the show, Palestinians, Israelis, Ukraine, Russia—they are all here in this room. And the, the the drama of the
2: performance was you sitting on these Th- bones, which are real cow bones, real mm. meat, real blood.
5: Real blood. Six days I do this, six hours a day, six hours, you know, counting.
2: How did that affect you spiritually?
5: Oh, it's it's you know, I really I'm very proud of this piece because I know this piece could be forever. Doesn't matter. It was my war that I was shame on Balkan. But after that, you can be used any, anywhere. And this is so important, that artists should not create something which is temporary. Mm-hmm. You have to create something that's transitory, that have transition to yeah. anywhere, anytime, place. Yeah.
2: So we're sitting in, in this room, which is very important because it has your, almost your signature piece uh, of, of the, 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 the Chinese, the Great Wall in China. And it was designed for you and your lover, Ulei, to walk from each end. That's a total of 5,000 plus kilometers. You walked about, about two thousand five hundred each. each. Exactly. It took you, what, three months or so to walk. What were you meant to do
5: when you met and what did you actually do? So this project start after we live with the Aborigines of Central Australia, one year in desert. And we realized the time the astronauts, when they land on the moon said that only two visible buildings made by hand, human hand, is the pyramids and Great Wall of China. And we had the idea in that time in the desert, let's walk Great right Wall of China. And eight years we was writing to Chinese government letters. And eight years we were getting very friendly answer, but we didn't move anywhere. The idea was they walk this Chinese wall and we meet in the middle and we married. And eight years Chinese don't answer. So we finally found the one man who was specialist on China politics and we show him all these letters and he said, he started laughing. I said, what is so funny about? He said, you know, Chinese have 17 ways to say no. And in these eight years, they exercised all 17 ways. I mean, so we have to go through the government, the Dutch government and the Chinese government. And the finally after eight years, we got permission to walk the Great of China. But in that time, our relation was ending. But as we never give up anything, we say, okay, now we're going to walk. Instead of marry, we're going to say goodbye. And one of our friends, Americans, say to us, why you just didn't make phone call? He missed the whole point.
2: (laughs) But I mean, seriously, it must have been very painful, though, when you finally met after all those years of work, after something that was meant to be a celebration of your love and your
5: unity, actually was the dissolution. Was it emotional? Did you cry? It it was incredibly emotional. First, emotional for a few reasons, because before... If we, if you if you you know lose lo- love of your life, you still can go back on your own work. But in this time I was 40 exactly, and all our work for 12 years was signed by two names. So we both of us didn't have any more our own work. So for me it was just you know I lost the love but also lost the work. I was nowhere to come back. And this was an incredible depressing moment of my life. And then
2: a few years later, you went back to a, a, an amazing performance that, that went viral around the world, The Artist is Present. It first showed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, I think, and what happened, because something like 1,500 people came and sat next to you and tried to stare you out, but
5: on one occasion, your former lover came. Yes. But actually I invite him as a, as a, you know, the, the guest of honor at that moment with absolutely no idea he's going to ever sit with me. This was not even the question. So when he came and just appeared in the front of me, you know, I never break the rules. I am like, I'm a soldier. I am warrior. I do things absolutely as I decide. This was the only time I broke the rule because in the front of me, it was, a man I love so much, and it was in front of me. Somebody—it was not the public; it was life itself. So I put my hand in the, on the table and touch him, and, and just cry. I, it was—it was one of these moments that it was so in, 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 intense. And it's so interesting how the young people in the, on, become a kind of viral everywhere because people realize real emotions because I have a, like flashback of 12 years, all the goods, all the best relations was easy. It was not easy. It was hell. It was wonderful. It was passionate. It was all at once.
2: And it was a rule that you broke because I was one of them who came and sat in front of you. And I know people tried to make you laugh, tried to make you break your gaze, tried to make you, you know, not be as disciplined as you were. And I was staggered by how passive and and, and unemotional, but it, your
5: eyes, you know, talked. So it was something for you to break that rule. Yeah, that was really high emotions, but also, I had very, lots of emotion with the people sitting in front of me because I could see solitude, I could see pain, I could see unhappiness, I could see, you know, the happiness. I could see so many different emotions. But what is interesting about the sitting, just that moment, and why it's so simple, is when you're waiting first in the line for a long time, finally you come and sit in the front of me and you are watched by the people waiting, you're watched by cameras, you watch watched by photographic, you know, photographer, and you're watched by me. Basically, you're nowhere to escape except into yourself. And when that happened, you kind of show me the true self, and I could see it, and you can see yourself. And then all the people start crying. I mean, we have so much people crying. It was really a very emotional moment. And, you know, the Klaus Busenbach, who's a curator of the show, he said to me, when I give him the idea, "We said, this is ridiculous. Nobody going to sit on this chair because it's it's New York, nobody have time. This chair will be always empty. The chair was never empty. And there were lines around the block and people sleeping outside the last week. It was really something to remember. So if that was kind of
2: gentle and communicative, one of your exhibitions, which is here now, is a table of 72 objects that you say, do what you will with these objects. I am the tool, do whatever you want to me. Tell me how that played out because it turned out pretty violent at one point.
5: But you know, I was 23 years old. I was so angry. I was so angry on the public, not understanding what performance art is. And whatever I was doing, I was always judged. And they say, okay. What if I don't do absolutely nothing? I am the tool, I'm there with you in, and they're the objects and you do stuff. I'm not doing it. And it was incredible to see that because I done this in Naples and in Naples, when you, with the objects that for pleasure and for violence, including bullet and pistol, it was incredible. In the first, it was six hours. The first one, two hours, nothing really happened. Then they cut my, they give me rose. Then they cut my 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 shirt. Then they put the pins in the rose into the, my body. Then they cut and steal a seal scarf and they suck my blood on my neck. Then they then they you know st- carry me around. They, there was so much the, the violence. Very interesting thing happened. Women didn't do anything. Women told men what to do, and women took when I was crying. They would take handkerchief and. And wash my face from the tears. How do you interpret that? I don't. I have no question. I'm I, shocked. This would happen. And then the moment after six hours, uh, the 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 gallery said to me, I am you know it's finished because I was like a like absolute statue. You put a hand like this, I stay like this. Whatever you do, I am in this position. After the six hours, he says it's over. I was full of blood, water, half naked. I was walking towards the public as me. They run away, all of them. And then I came to the hotel and I look myself in the mirror and I have just a piece of white hair. Straight.
3: Really? Just white
5: hair. One night. Your hair turned white in yeah. one night? One yeah. streak? After this piece. This was a piece that I realized that I really could be killed. And somebody did point a loaded gun at you. Yes. And, they, and then another person came and took the gun, threw out to the window. It was so much violence. But spent. at what point do the guards have a responsibility? Marina, you could have been killed. I know. Somebody could have not just nicked your, sh- your, your neck. They could have got your jugular. But now we talk about performance. When you go into state of performance, you're not you. You're, you know, you're not little Marina who can start thinking what all hell can happen. You're Super Marina. You're the higher form of yourself. And then everything's possible. It's almost a sort of out-of-body out experience.
2: Um, another, another performance that you did with Ole was so dramatic as well. And you explained to me what it's called, but essentially you're both standing, leaning. He's got the arrow, you've got the bow. And one
5: false move could have killed you. What was that about? This was all about trust. We are born the same day, Ulay and me, which is 13 November. We are both Sagittarius, which is Sagittarius. The boy and Iroh is a symbol of Sagittarius. And we decide to do this thing. And the one point, in one interview, when we split a long time ago, they asked Ulay, but why Iroh is facing her and not you? And you know what he said? He said, but this is my heart too. Had he just flinched a little bit and lost his grip. The arrow would have gone into your heart. It's true. Sure, somewhere. And, but normally, we, our performances are mostly very long. This was the shortest performance in our, my life. It's four minutes and 20 seconds. It was lifetime. Lifetime. Were you scared? Not even when I'm doing it. I, it, everything, my fear is always before, before I get into, th- into the front of the public. So, is this about you and your fears and your extremes of boundaries,
2: or is it about what you're trying to communicate with other people? What, what is your absolute motivation beyond taking things that scare you so much and
5: trying to conquer it? To me, it? the most important is really to be example that you can over, overcome the fear of Pain, the fear of dying, the fear of of of, of suffering—that you, especially emotional suffering—that you can actually overcome. And I'm showing them in my own example, and then also not to be afraid of failure. You can fail; everything can go wrong. But failures are so important because failures is a main main learning material. You fail, you stand up and do it again. And that's something that that I need to show to the audience. It's all about how to learn to lift spirit up. It's so easy to put spirit down. It's so difficult to put it up. You know, know, I, I was very, very actually uh, it's a completely different subject, but in the, during the Second World War, when everybody was painting atrocities and difficulties of the war and reflecting the situation, you know, Matisse, he was the only one who painted flowers, entire four years of the war. And I start understanding only now with my 78 years old, why is that? Because you need to live the spirit of humanity. You don't need to reflect what is already in front of you. Well, that's a really good place to end because right now there's a lot of war, a lot of
2: discord, a lot of inability to communicate. It's really important to hear you say that. Thank you, Marina Abramovich. Thank you.
1: The spirit of humanity indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. And
2: now, news today from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard's highest governing body announced that Claudine Gay will remain as president, this after an uproar about the handling of anti-Semitism on campus and controversial testimony on the matter in front of Congress. Rabbi David Wolpe was on Harvard's anti-Semitism advisory group, but resigned over what he says was the university's failure to take its advice. Here is Rabbi Wolpe talking to Harry Srinivasan about that decision.
3: Christian, thanks. Rabbi David Wolpe, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Before we get to the congressional testimony, I I wanna back up a second here. And what was the purpose of the committee that Harvard formed that you were a member of?
8: After October 7th, um, the president realized once Letters had come out and protests had been uh, exploding all over campus that we had, in her own words, a problem with anti-Semitism at Harvard. And so she called me and uh, a couple of other people and said, would you be willing to be on a committee to help us address this? And of course, I, I said yes. And so did a number of other faculty and alumni. And we were supposed to advise the president on how to tackle this problem.
3: Got it. So what, what has been the work of the committee so far? Have you met? Have you made progress toward things?
8: Well, we met many times. We met twice a week. Um, our, in advance, it was said that our deliberations were going to be confidential. But I would say, I can certainly say that we tendered a lot of advice.
3: Okay. And did you feel that the committee was making progress towards the goals?
8: If I had felt that we were making progress towards the goals, I think I would have stayed on the committee, but it seemed to me that the situation was getting progressively worse and many of the things that I individually certainly felt um, needed to happen almost immediately didn't happen.
3: Okay, so now let's kind of uh, get our audience up to speed of what happened this past week. And the presidents of Harvard, MIT, Penn all testified in front of Congress, um, and they were asked by Representative Elise Stefanik uh, if calling for the genocide of Jews violated the school's code of conduct. Now, each of the three gave very carefully worded answers. Um, What was your concern about that?
8: My concern was actually even less the content of the answer than the tone of the answer. That is, I was hoping for some indignation for some, I'm president of a university and I can't stand that there's anti-Semitism at my university and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to address it because this is unacceptable and wrong. And instead, you got a sort of, you know, a a parade of legalese and and equivocation and qualification, and I wanted vision.
3: Look, I know you're a rabbi and you you deal with the matters of the soul a lot more than uh, everyone else, but do you think this is the core of uh, these three presidents or, you know, look, were they prepped by their lawyers to mind their P's and Q's and not say something that might be used against them later, and ironically, which is what happened? So,
8: first of all, I mean, my interactions with Claudine Gay, I I like her and think she's very thoughtful and and good and kind. I mean, I've always had very good interactions with her. Um, One of the things that you learn as a rabbi is it's very easy to leap to conclusions about people's souls. Um, And and, um, if you don't believe me, just, you know, look on social media. People are doing it all the time, saying this person's like this and that person's like that. I think certainly the, the legal advice played a role, um, but I also think that self-conception might have something to do with it. If you think of yourself as, I am leading this great institution, and it doesn't matter what other people are going to say about it. I have to take this stand because I am the leader of this great institution, maybe that puts a little rocket fuel under your rhetoric. And we didn't see that.
3: This weekend, the University of Pennsylvania president, Liz McGill resigned. She said uh, in uh, a video that she posted, I I wanna quote here, in that moment, I was focused on our university's longstanding policies aligned with the US Constitution, which say that speech alone is not punishable. She went on to say, I was not focused on, but I should have been the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetuate. What did you make of that?
8: I think that that's exactly right. I think that it is when you create a climate of of anger and intimidation on a college campus, you can't do what campuses are intended to do, which is to learn and to teach. And that should have been the focus. And I think What you hear in her words is that she was worried that there would be some stepping over some kind of imagined legal boundary. And in fact, what she should have been worried about is the stepping over of the moral boundary.
3: Yeah. Claudine Gay also made a a statement. She also apologized uh, in her words. Let me be clear, calls for violence or genocide against the Jewish community or any religious or ethnic group are vile. They have no place at Harvard, and those who threaten our Jewish students will be held to account. Let's talk a little bit about your resignation. So these events, as we've sort of said them, there, there's been a committee for anti-Semitism. You were invited on board. Uh, this testimony happens in front of Congress, and then you resign. How come?
8: Because... The testimony reinforced the sense that I already had, that in fact, our council was not being helpful, uh, was not advancing the cause that I wanted to advance. And so it seemed to me actually easier in some ways to be a spokesperson outside of there. Um, Students were coming to me and saying, not only students, but also members of the Jewish community, why are you on this panel? It gives it legitimacy when nothing is happening. And I heard that, and I thought that that, there was a lot of of force to that critique. And at a certain point, I thought, I can't associate myself with a panel that gives me a lot of accountability and no authority.
3: So you felt that being on the committee was like you could not activate the change that you wanted to see being part of the structure? Because there's going to be a lot of people saying, hey, look, you, you kind of gave up the keys to... Be able to affect change from the inside.
8: I really think that um, my experience since leaving is that my voice is amplified; it it isn't reduced, and I'm still in touch with the members of the committee and with the administration, Um, and and as I said, with faculty, students, alumni, donors. uh, I really believe that this is a this is a critical institution in American life and in world life, and. And anything that we can do to try to save our key campuses and make them homes of ideological diversity and real discussion and deep learning is, is a noble and even a sacred effort.
3: And I want to go through um, parts of your resignation uh, statement here too. You said part of the problem is a simple herd mentality, people screaming slogans whose meaning and implication they know nothing of, or not wishing to be disliked by taking an unpopular position. Some of it is the desire to achieve social status by being the sole or greatest victim. Some of it is simple, old fashioned Jew hatred and that ugly arrow in the quiver of dark hearts for millennia. Now, to most people, it's that last line that constitutes antisemitism, right? But for you, the other reasons, kind of explain those. Are they just as bad? How, how did we get here?
8: They're not just as bad, but their effects can be just as toxic. Um, so, if you have people sh- screaming from the river to the sea, um, and and even though they don't know what river and what sea, which we found again and again when you ask them, they say, "Wait, well, I the Nile? I don't know." Um, but nonetheless, the, the effect on the Jewish students is the same because of those two hundred students masked on the steps of Weidner Library screaming from the river to the sea. You don't know. Who's expressing genuine hate and who just said, who came along because their roommate said, come, it'll be fun. Um, so the motivation may be less um, poisonous, but the effect can be the same.
3: Uh, another part of your statement um, you said, ideology that grips far too many of the students and faculty, the ideology that works only along axes of oppression and places Jews as oppressors and therefore intrinsically evil is itself evil. Ignoring Jewish suffering is evil. Belittling or denying the Jewish experience, including unspeakable atrocities, is a vast and continuing catastrophe. Denying Israel the self-determination as a Jewish nation accorded unthinkingly to others is endemic and evil. Now, I understand a little bit of the historical context and the concerns that Jewish people have, uh, but is there a place for A legitimate criticism of the actions of a country, Israel, without a negation of Israel's right to exist or the Jewish people's right to exist?
8: Absolutely. I criticize Israel. I don't know anyone who doesn't criticize Israel, but even those among those who love Israel, Israelis are brutal in their criticism of Israel. We saw hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the streets protesting before October 7th, criticizing Israel. But here's what I haven't heard. I hear people criticizing Russia. I hear no one say Russia shouldn't exist. I hear people criticize Germany after the Second World War, when the, the, the worst country in the history of humanity. Nobody said there shouldn't be a Germany anymore. That is reserved solely for the one Jewish state in the world. There are 50 Muslim states. I've never heard someone say one of those Muslim states shouldn't exist. Only the Jewish state shouldn't exist. And that you have to ask yourself, why is it that that is the only state that receives that imprecation over and over and over again? And if it isn't anti-Semitism, then it confounds me what it could possibly be.
3: What is it about our climate today that has created this kind of campus culture? I guess where you know I spoke to a student that was is attending uh, Columbia, and you know she said she's never felt so constrained about her views in her entire academic life. If she says, for example, she is for a ceasefire, something that used to be an innocuous phrase, uh, now she gets called out for saying she's supporting Hamas. And she's like, no, I just want people to stop fighting. Is that so crazy? But I don't feel like I can even say something like that because of such a charged environment right now where everything I say can and will be used against me.
8: I think at this moment, tensions are so high that it is really difficult for people to have genuine dialogue about that. I spoke yesterday at a, uh, at, at a synagogue and someone stood up and made a long and eloquent plea about why he thought a ceasefire was justified. And I said to him, I appreciate your point of view and I think it comes from a humanistic place. I really do. And I want to tell you why it is that I disagree with you. And that kind of exchange is the way adults speak to each other. And we're trying to train our students to do the same. Um, But it's not always easy when, you know, people line up into teams. Look, this is not, by the way, this is not unique to college campuses. When I was a kid, um, if you asked people, would you marry someone of another race? Most people said no. And if you asked, would you marry someone of another political party? Most people said yes. Now it's exactly reversed. If you ask, would you marry someone of another race, most people would say yes. Of another political party, most people would say no, which tells you two things. One is that progress can be made in our world, which is an optimistic thing. And the second is that the polarization is very bad right now. And that's something that we really, really have to work on, how to have dialogue across views.
3: So one of the concerns that came out from that testimony that was delivered by the college presidents was, are we essentially asking colleges in some way to codify boundaries on speech?
8: I would say that again, it, it, it's not about the speech in particular, it's about creating a climate of intimidation and fear, which some of the speech is designed to do. It's about bullying and harassment, not about expression of opinion. and when you scream at students who are walking their way into the library, um, baby killer. Uh, that's not a function of opinion expression. It's a function of seeking to intimidate and harass with speech. And those are the kinds of boundaries that I think we're used to actually in normal everyday discourse and universities do have to grapple with that.
3: So we have some apologies from these campus presidents, but. What can and what should campuses be working on to create an environment where you can have that intellectual debate without taking specific communities and, right. you know, uh, attacking them?
8: So I'll suggest a couple of things. One is the enforcement of current policies, which I think have been under enforced because people are afraid of blowback. Um, the second is, To educate people about the history of, um, just as Harvard did with its Long Racism Project, to do that with anti Semitism, because the hatred of the Jews stands in the center of, of Western civilization. It's not peripheral to it, and we need to deal with that and with the place of Jews in the creation of our civilization. And I would say, third, we need serious, sustained, and immediate training in what we've been talking about which is how to disagree with someone else without screaming, threatening, shouting, in other words, civil discourse.
3: You know, one of the things that you call for at the end of uh, your resignation statement, um, we are now in the period where Jews around the world are celebrating Hanukkah and you encourage people to make a choice to bring light uh, into the world. So this is a time when it seems like we could use a lot of light, not just on college campuses, but given what else is happening on the planet today. Um, h- how do we do that? What's, a, what's, a, what's an easy prescription for someone watching this program wherever they are in the world to try to bring light into the situation?
8: I think you, you bring light, first of all, by listening, genuinely listening to the other, by responding with decency, with kindness, with, with respect, with goodness, and also, as has been true for millions of years, you bring light with love. And I think that uh, bringing love to the world and light to the world is uh, is the task of every faith. And I wish that it were more manifest on our campuses and in our country. And uh, as this new year is about to begin and we're celebrating Hanukkah, I'm hopeful that maybe the future will be a little brighter than this past.
3: Rabbi David Wolpe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Every night
2: here, we commit to fostering dialogue, And finally, you know that it's holiday season when American singer songwriter Alicia Keys makes a surprise appearance at one of Europe's busiest train stations. She serenaded fans on a public piano donated by Elton John to London's St Pancras Station, home of the Eurostar. Here's a bit of that impromptu concert.